Uh, If you would open your Bibles to Acts chapter 27, Uh, that's where we are. We've got just two weeks left in the book of Acts, and then we'll have a short uh, summer series and possibly, possibly, possibly might be starting uh, the book of Romans in the fall. So we'll see about that, leaning into that. Um, Acts 27. Uh, One of my favorite lines in sort of classic literature comes from Kenneth Graham's beloved children's book, uh, The Wind and the Willows. Has anybody read this? Like five of you, or well, 15 of you. Okay, good, good, all right. This is a more literate group than first service, so you can brag about that if you would like. This is a fun read. This is a great time to read this book as spring is giving way to summer here. And if you don't know much about it, in this book, we meet these three furry friends. We meet the good-natured mole who is tired of his spring cleaning. I can relate to that. And then we run into this playful ratty who is this loyal, good-natured guy. And then we meet uh, Badger who is serious and virtuous. And these three creatures uh, sort of have this uh, adventure together where they try to rescue their friend, the toad, the eccentric and obsessive toad from his latest obsession, which is the motor coach, right? And uh, in this book, early in the first chapter, uh, there is this great line that occurs when Mole, coming out of his spring cleaning, travels to the river and finds Ratty in a boat. And Mole confesses to him, I've never been in a boat before. Ratty cannot believe it and replies with these wonderful words. Believe me, my young friend, there is nothing, absolutely nothing half so much worth doing as simply messing about in boats. Simply messing, he went on dreamily, messing about in boats, messing. I love that line, Uh, messing about in boats. A good thing to do, unless, of course, Uh, you're sailing with the Apostle Paul. (laughs) Then it seems like it's uh, kind of a dangerous thing to do. According to the uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul says that he has been in three shipwrecks. And spoiler alert, in our chapter today, he adds another one to the tally. That's four. And so... maybe uh, you don't want to be messing about in boats with the Apostle Paul, right? And so today we are actually tracking Paul's journey from Caesarea, where he has been held as a prisoner for uh, two years, and we kind of follow him on his long-awaited voyage to Rome. And wouldn't you know it, there's a shipwreck along the way. And you might ask yourself this question, I asked myself this week, why do we care? Why do we care about the, the sort of chronicling of this journey and the routes they took and the storms and the places that they anchored up at? Why, do, why does Dr. Luke give us 44 verses in this chapter about this journey? And at least one popular theory about this is, is kind of to highlight the way that Dr. Luke uh, gives his attention in two of his major works. His first, of course, is the Gospel of Luke, where the last 25% of it He basically follows Jesus who sets his face to Jerusalem in his long travel narrative there. And then in the book of Acts, which is, of course, the sequel 
to the Gospel of Luke, also written by Dr. Luke. The last 25% of it, he focuses on the Apostle Paul's journey from from Jerusalem to Rome. And so it seems like he's sort of giving us this parody of these travel, uh, travel narratives. And I think it is a way of his capturing how the Apostle Paul mimics the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I think that's why he gives us all this attention here. Uh, where Jesus' mission took him from Galilee to the cross in Jerusalem. Paul's mission is going to take him with the message of the cross journeying from there to Rome. And I think as we follow Paul's journey here, what we get to see is actually what an integrated Christian life looks like. An integrated Christian life. Because whether Paul is preaching to crowds or traveling with strangers or in the marketplace or interacting with his supervisor or eating with friends, His faith is integrated into everything that he does. He is an example of an integrated Christian life. So chapter 27, verse 1. When it was decided that we would sail for Italy, Paul and some other prisoners were handed over to a centurion named Julius, who belonged to the imperial regiment. We boarded a ship from Andromitium, about to sail for ports along the coast of the province of Asia, and we put out to sea. Aristarchus, a Macedonian from Thessalonica, was with us. Now, for starters, this maybe doesn't sound like much. Okay, so what? They're, they're setting out towards Italy. They're heading towards Rome. Big deal. It is a big deal. This has been a long-term goal of the Apostle Paul. This has been his dream to get to Rome. Uh, probably all of us have a particular city that we might like to travel to. Uh, maybe you wanted to go to Paris someday. That's my daughter's dream. Paris, someday with mom, someday. Uh, I, I want to go to Jerusalem. I want to stand on the Mount of Olives, and I want to see the Garden of Gethsemane and the place that Jesus ascended from and visit the little city of Bethany where he frequently visited Mary and Martha and Lazarus and, and see that region. That's exciting to me. Paul wanted to get to Rome. That's our first point, his long-awaited journey to get to Rome. Even in the first chapter of Romans, he tells us, he kind of gives us a picture of his heart and how he longs for this in Romans 1.11. He says, I long to see you so that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to make you strong. That is, that you and I might be mutually encouraged by each other's faith. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers and sisters, that I planned many times to come to you but have been prevented from doing so until now, in order that I might have a harvest among you, just as I have had among other Gentiles. I am obligated both to Greeks and non-Greeks, both to the wise and the foolish. That is why I am so eager to preach the gospel also to you who are in Rome. Now, this is written uh, maybe two, maybe three years earlier uh, from our point in time in Acts. So this is something that he's kind of written and sent off and now is on his way. And as he makes this journey, he's even able to do it on the emperor's dime, which is kind of cool. Paul's not having to fund this one. So let's ask a few questions here. Why is Paul so interested in going to Rome? What is it like? And what's the significance of, of this particular destination here? 
Rome is easily the largest and most magnificent city in the ancient world. Uh, It obviously represented the center of the Roman Empire and all that it controlled, which if you look at a map at this time, just basically surrounds the Mediterranean Sea. It was basically the known world. Uh, Rome was a melting pot of different ethnicities and cultures where we see Greeks and Romans and Jews and barbarians all sort of integrating together in a common social life. Uh, It's where the Greek language and culture was protected and and prospered. There was a great respect for the law, uh, incredible road systems, aqueducts, theaters, baths, museums. All roads led to Rome. It was the nexus of the known world. And uh, this particular time where Paul is headed there, it's 20 years before the emperor Domitian, not Diocletian, Domitian, who was a persecutor of the church, so that hasn't begun yet. The emperor in charge at the time is actually Nero. And if you know your history at all, you might think, wait a minute, Nero, pretty sure he was a bad guy. Pretty sure he was tough on Christians and persecuted them. And you'd be right, he did, but that hasn't started yet. So for the Apostle Paul, if we kind of put ourselves in his sandals at this moment in time here, Rome represented an opportunity, a beachhead of influence. If he can get to Rome and the gospel can take root there, then from there, the whole world could know the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so that's what Paul is after here. In fact, You might even see this as kind of the completion of the commission that Jesus gave to the disciples at the very beginning of Acts, if you remember, in Acts 1.8, that you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And Rome sort of represents this completion of that commission um, that was given to the uh, disciples at the beginning. Secondly here, we would say that Paul has led, or God has led Paul to Rome through a very circuitous route, right? First of all, it started with this conflict outside of the temple in Jerusalem. Uh, some, some fellow Jews had the wrong end of the stick about him, didn't understand his teaching. They thought he had brought a Gentile into uh, the temple when he had not, and they were ready to kill him for that. So then he's arrested and he's imprisoned eventually taken to Caesarea where he undergoes three different trials under Felix, Festus, and King Agrippa. And finally, finally, it's time for his deportation to Rome to be heard by Caesar. So verse 3. The next day we landed at Sidon, and Julius, in kindness to Paul, allowed him to go to his friends so that they might provide for his needs. From there we put out to sea again and passed to the lee of Cyprus because the winds were against us. When we had sailed across the open sea off the coast of Cilicia and Pamphylia, we landed at Myra and Lycia. There the centurion found an Alexandrian ship sailing for Italy and put us on board. We made slow headway for many days and had difficulty arriving off Nidus. When the wind did not allow us to hold our course, we sailed to the lee of Crete opposite of Salmone. And we moved along the coast with difficulty and came to a place called Fair Havens near the town of Lasia. Much time had been lost and sailing had already become dangerous because by now it was after the Day of Atonement. So Paul warned them, Men, 
I can see that our voyage is going to be disastrous and bring great loss to ship and cargo and to our own lives also. But the centurion, instead of listening to what Paul said, followed the advice of the pilot and of the owner of the ship. Since the harbor was unsuitable to winter in, the majority decided that we should sail on, hoping to reach Phoenix and winter there. This was a harbor in Crete, both facing southwest and northwest. Now, normally, I, I might read a passage like this and hear about all these ports and these locations, and, and they would not mean too much to me, and I would just kind of read through it, stumble through the pronunciations and, and whatnot. Um, but in this instance, I've been there. So this is exciting for me because it kind of wakes it up as I can think about having been in Myra and many of these other places. So if you don't know, back in 2019, I went on sabbatical and had a chance to travel to Turkey for two weeks. And for five of those days, easily the coolest thing I've ever done in my life, I got to sail on a 100-foot wooden yacht called a goulette as we went through the Mediterranean and stopped at different ports that Paul uh, was in. It was the most wonderful thing. If you ever get a chance to do it, I highly recommend it. So I brought some vacation pictures with me to show you. So this is Myra. Um, and this is sort of the backdrop of the town, a hillside. And these are basically all um, tombs. And so the wealthy would have a tomb up in the rock like this, and they would bury them with their treasure, which seems like a stupid thing to do, uh, because, of course, grave robbers would come in and take the treasure and leave the bones. And they did. So that, this is Myra. And this is uh, the port in Myra. And what you're looking at there is the ruins of uh, ancient church there, no doubt Paul would have come right through this church, and this was the port that he sailed from. Also, uh, this is a place where um, they harvested these little crustaceans that were filled with purple dye. And so if you remember Lydia, who was a dealer in purple dye, this is one of the ports that she would have worked from uh, getting some of those crustaceans, and uh, that was part of her trade. And this was, these are our boats we had two of these. Uh, there was a group of us from Western Seminary traveling together, and my favorite professor, John Johnson, was there, and um, he was kind of our teacher and guide. And so just a couple pictures of sailing out of Myra, and here we are leaving sort of the cove and going into open water, uh, one of our stops along the way. Uh, I think we need to plant a church right here, and I'm willing to go, so just so you know. I think I could get some fishing done there. And this place is also interesting. Let me, let me tell you about this. Um, another feature of Myra, just to wake it up for you a little bit, there was a very famous 4th century bishop that ministered here and lived here. Anybody think they know who it is? 4th century bishop. Yeah, first service people were like... Some of you might be thinking St. Augustine because you hear 4th century bishop, but no, it actually is... St. Nicholas, St. Nick, Santa Claus. So don't let the good folks of North Pole fool you with their candy cane lights and their Santa Claus house. St. Nick is from Turkey. And this was uh, the church that he ministered from and where he is buried, actually, too. Now, I don't want to spend too much time on Paul's itinerary and sailing from port to port. Uh, what I do want to spend time looking at is Paul's integrity, who he was as a person. Because I think in this journey to Rome, 
Uh, Dr. Luke gives us a wonderful example chronicling for us Paul's integrated Christian life. And so this is our next point. Paul shows himself to be a man of integrity. Now, uh, when I use that phrase integrity, I think oftentimes that sort of conjures up this image of just simply moral purity or what a person doesn't do or what they don't engage in. They don't do bad things. But when I'm using that phrase integrity here, I mean a bigger concept than that. I mean that Paul's faith is integrated into every aspect of his life. Christianity is not a compartment of Paul's life. It's not a belief that he maintains on the side. It is the organizing feature permeating all of his life. And that is what I mean by an integrated life. And in this travel account provided by Dr. Luke, we get sort of this firsthand glimpse of of seeing this integration in the Apostle Paul. So first off, we might observe this. He seems to be a man that others trust and care for. Um, In the text that I read a few moments ago, we ran into this centurion by the name of Julius. And he seems to be a good guy. Uh, I, I don't know about you, but oftentimes when I think of Roman centurions, I sort of conjure up this caricature of, you know, butchers and slashers and these, you know, unscrupulous guys. These are good guys. Uh, uh, we, we met two actually here recently. We, we, we first saw uh, Lysias, who was the one that arrested Paul outside the gates of the temple when the rioters were trying to kill him. And he got him safely through the lynch mob all the way up to Caesarea for a fair trial. He's a good guy. And this guy here, Um, Julius also seems to be a good guy. And I would just say, leave it to a man of character to recognize a man of character. Incredibly, Julius, who's got Paul under arrest, says, feel free to go. Go visit your friends. Let them care for you. Have a nice meal. Get some pies, whatever you need from them. And then come on back. That's incredible kind of trust that this man who's got Paul under arrest has for him. And then there's this other bit that, well, Paul seems to have friends in Sidon. I can't think of any time in the book of Acts where we're told that Paul even ministered there. So he seems to have friends in every port who even want to help and care for him. Finally, he's got Dr. Luke as a traveling companion here. You might have noticed in the last couple of, uh, or last month or so, the language in Acts has changed to we language, because Dr. Luke is right there with him, traveling with him and recording things. The book of Acts is sort of being written as they go. But then there's this other fellow, and I bet most of you have missed him. And his name is Aristarchus. And he has been a consistent traveling companion for the Apostle Paul. He is not under arrest, but he endures Paul's arrest with him. But an interesting thing about this guy is if you remember back in chapter 19 when there was the riot in Ephesus, uh, remember when the silversmith kind of dimed Paul out and everybody got upset and they all ran to the theater? I showed you pictures of that too. And for hours they had this riot chanting, great is Artemis, great is Artemis. And they, uh, they kind of took up and arrested a couple guys there. Well, one of those guys was Aristarchus. In other words, he has been a loyal defensive friend of the Apostle Paul and is even traveling with him now. So 
So Aristarchus is like, he's like the Samwise Gamgee, right? For the Apostle Paul. Don't you leave him, Samwise, right? This made me think of Proverbs 18, 24. One who has unreliable friends soon comes to ruin, but there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. And so Paul seems to have these kinds of friends, those that stick close, loyal, caregiving, protective friends. The next thing we see, Paul seems to be a man of wisdom. Um, and we have, we're going to do something kind of fun here. I've put a map on the back of your, um, your handout. It looks like this. And I get to be like John Madden here today with a little telestrator. How many of you guys are jealous right now? You don't have to raise your hand. I know you are. So let's see if I can get this to work. Oh, John Madden would be not proud of me. I've got to hold this down for a few seconds to get it on. There we go. All right. There we go. Um, so we basically, we started off in Jerusalem where he was arrested, up to Caesarea, traveled to Sidon here, and then we get their voyage up and around sort of the Lee of Cyprus and on their way over to Myra, which I've shown you. And then around this horn here, and this is where they start hitting bad weather. They're intending to go up this way, but instead they get blown down here to Fair Havens. And that's all I wanted to do. I just wanted to, I just wanted to play with the telestrator this morning. So, um, but what's what's interesting about this? You know, they 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 end up in this port called Fair Havens. That sounds like a nice B and B, doesn't it? Or like a like a a pub in Tolkien's Lord of the Rings, you know, they left the Prancing Pony and they went on to Fair Havens or something like this. What's interesting is I, as I look at this map and follow his journey is that uh, we actually ran into weather at the same, in the same place when we were sailing. And the captain said, the, the weather looks rough, so we're actually going to offboard you off the ship here. We're going to bust you around the horn and then we're going to take the boat through the rough weather because we don't want you guys to have to endure that. So that was, that's sort of interesting to me. But we were going um, in, in May, I think it was. So it was like ideal sailing season. The text tells us here that it is the wrong time to be sailing. And so Paul just gives a warning. And the warning is not because an angel appeared or because he's had a vision or a revelation or a dream. Paul is just employing everyday conventional wisdom. It's the wrong season. We're told that it's after the Day of Atonement, which means it's the first week of October. Sailing season comes to an abrupt stop in November. It's just too unsafe. And so basically what's happening here is the captain and crew are pushing the envelope. Hubris, pride, and greed are pressing them to go. And Paul is just saying, this isn't wise. And we might sort of scoff at the Apostle Paul like, here we have an, uh, a theologian, an apostle, giving sailing advice. You know, come on, Paul, stay in your lane, right? But Paul's got at least 11 sea voyages under his belt at this point. This would be his 12th. And that, if you think about that, he's already been shipwrecked three times, and this is the fourth. That's one in three times Paul goes in the drink, which, I, you know, I don't know what to think about that. But he probably has more sailing experience here than any of the other passengers or likely some of the crew. He knows it's the wrong season. He knows they're taking an unnecessary risk. He can see that it's bad news, and he warns them. I think of Proverbs 12, 15. 
The way of fools seems right to them, but the wise listen to advice. But the ship's pilot and captain convince centurion, and they go anyways, and they pay for it. Verse 13. When a gentle south wind began to blow, they saw their opportunity. So they weighed anchor and sailed along the shore of Crete. Before very long, a wind of hurricane force called the northeaster swept down from the island. The ship was caught by the storm and could not head into the wind. So we gave way to it and were driven along. As we passed to the lee of the small island called Kuda, we were hardly able to make the lifeboat secure. So the men hoisted it aboard. Then they passed ropes under the ship itself to hold it together. Because they were afraid they would run aground on the sandbars of Sirtis, they lowered the sea anchor and let the ship be driven along. We took such a violent battering from the storm that the next day they began to throw the cargo overboard. On the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. When neither sun nor stars appeared for many days and the storm continued raging, we finally gave up all hope of being saved. After they had gone a long time without food, Paul stood up before them and said, Men, you should have taken my advice not to sail from Crete. Then you would have, been, you would have spared yourselves this damage and loss. But now I urge you to keep up your courage because not one of you will be lost. Only the ship will be destroyed. Last night, an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I serve stood beside me and said, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand trial before Caesar. And God has graciously given you the lives of all who sail with you. So keep up your courage, men, for I have faith in God that it will happen just as he told me. Nevertheless, we must run aground on some island. So apparently I have to correct my introductory remarks where I said, it is not fun messing about in boats with the Apostle Paul, right? It seems like maybe actually he's just the guy you want to be with. For the Lord has given him everyone who is sailing with him. Um, Paul has shown himself here to be a man of faith. Personally, I take no pleasure in hearing, I told you so particularly annoying. And it almost seems like that's what Paul is starting off with here, but I don't think he's actually scolding them or shaming them or even necessarily vindicating himself. I think he's just trying to underscore his credibility so that they will listen to his warning this time. And apparently there's 276 people on board the vessel here. To our knowledge, only three of them are Christians. Paul, Aristarchus, and Dr. Luke. But that doesn't create any timidity for them. They speak up publicly about their faith and about what they know to be true. Paul publicly identifies himself as a Christian. So his faith is on display here, not as something he had once upon a time when he converted to Christianity, but as a matter of an ongoing, living, active faith. As he says himself in Romans 1.17, the righteous will live by faith. It's not just a momentary thing. It's not just the way into salvation. It is the way of salvation. Our faith is a continual activity of believing God for the unseen. And then finally, we see here that Paul is a man of gratitude. Gratitude. Verse 27. On the 14th night, 
We were still being driven across the Adriatic Sea when about midnight the sailors sensed that we were approaching land. They took soundings and found that the water was 120 feet deep. A short time later they took soundings again and found that it was 90 feet deep. Fearing that we would be dashed against the rocks, they dropped four anchors from the stern and prayed for daylight. In an attempt to escape from the ship, the sailors let the lifeboat down into the sea, pretending they were going to lower some anchors from the bow. Then Paul said to the centurion and soldiers, unless these men stay with the ship, you cannot be saved. So the soldiers cut the ropes that held the lifeboat and let it drift away. Just before dawn, Paul urged them all to eat. For the last 14 days, he said, you have been in constant suspense and have gone without food. You haven't eaten anything. Now I urge you to take some food. You need it to survive. Not one of you will lose a single hair from his head. After he said this, he took some bread and he gave thanks to God in front of them all. Then he broke it and began to eat. They were all encouraged and ate some food themselves. Altogether, uh, there were 276 of us on board. When they had eaten as much as they wanted, they lightened the ship by throwing the grain into the sea. When daylight came, they did not recognize the land, but they saw a bay with a sandy beach. They, were decide, they decided to run the ship aground if they could. Cutting loose the anchors, they left them in the sea and at the same time untied the ropes that held the rudders. Then they hoisted the foresail to the wind and made for the beach. But the ship struck a sandbar and ran aground. The bow ran, struck fast and would not move, and the stern was broken to pieces by the pounding of the surf. The soldiers planned to kill the prisoners to prevent any of them from swimming away and escaping, but the centurion wanted to spare Paul's life and kept him from carrying out their plan. He ordered those who could swim to jump overboard first to get to land. The rest were to get there on planks or on other pieces of the ship. In this way, everyone reached land safely. And the simple thing that I observe here is, in fact, I think not a simple thing to do at all. And that is that in the very midst of this incredibly stressful situation, an impending shipwreck, hunger, and all of the threats that they had endured, Paul is calm and he prays. And he doesn't pray for relief, he doesn't pray for daylight like they do, but as they simply eat food, he he's, gives thanks for the food. Gratitude in the midst of all that is happening here. And it's sort of unexpected. And I think it's kind of profound. When I think about our lives, I think, how often does our faith not show up in the public spheres that we find ourselves in? At work, or at school, or in the grocery aisle at Fred Meyer. You ever notice that when you run into your Christian friends in a public place like that, and you start talking about God or church or especially Jesus, you start to whisper? Just watch for it. You'll catch yourself doing it. Maybe not you. Your friend does it, right? They do it. It happens. We get sort of shy in public about our faith. So as I think about where Paul finds himself, these are the questions that come to mind. How easy is it for all of us to forget about God when we get busy? Or how easy is it for us to take matters into our own hands when we're stressed out and anxious? How easy is it for us to forget that we're Christians when we're out in public? How easy is it for us to keep our faith on the margins of our life where it's easy and acceptable? How common is it for us 
to live a compartmentalized Christian life. So I want to ask you to do something here. I want you to imagine your life as a house with a bunch of rooms, many as you want. Living room, family room, kitchen, game room, man cave, whatever. All of the rooms of your house that you can imagine. And the question I want to ask you is this. Are there any rooms of your house, the house of your life, where God is not allowed? Where he is not present? Where you don't let him in or let him influence? Does God go to work with you? Does God go to school with you? Does God go to the internet with you? Does God go to girls' night with you? Does God do your banking with you? And my encouragement to you or my challenge to you is this. Don't try to make God part of your life. Don't even try to make God first in your life. Make God central in your life, in all of your life, so that he would permeate every facet about you. Proverbs 11.3 says this, The integrity of the upright guides them, but the unfaithful are destroyed by their duplicity. Let's pray. Lord, we're grateful for this example that we have of the Apostle Paul, the integration of his life, His faith is not a component or something on the side, but it is woven into the fabric of everything he does. Lord, I pray that by comparison we would examine our lives and we would consider how faith fits into it. Is it a Sunday thing, a compartment, a feature, or does it run through every aspect of our life? Lord, teach us to be integrated to know that that is good and to do that by faith as we learn to follow Jesus in everything. For it's in his name we pray, amen.